Good morning. Once again, let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. This morning we're going to be particularly focusing on verses 22 to 30, but I want us, uh, for the sake of context, to begin reading uh, back in verse 14. If you're visiting with us, we are in the middle of a series through Luke's Gospel, and we're glad that you're here to join us uh, for this challenging passage this morning. This is God's word. Luke writes, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh Lord, would your word, which is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, would it pierce us? Would it convict us? Would it challenge us? Lord, would it help us to see life and reality and you and the gospel in a completely different way? God, we ask that you, by your spirit, would do the work that only you could do. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our great prophet, priest, and king. Amen. If you took a middle school physical science class or a high school physics class, then you probably remember learning about Isaac Newton's three laws of motion. Uh, the first is the law of inertia, right? That an object, uh, that is, an object that is at rest or an object that's at constant motion is going to remain at rest or remain in constant motion uh, unless a force acts upon it. Newton could have called this the law of parenting, right? If you ever had teenage boys or if you had toddlers, right? Teenage boys at rest, 
you know, toddlers, uh, always constant motion, needs that, act, that, act, that force to act upon it. All right? That's the first law. The second law is the law of force. All right, F equal MA, right? Uh, force equals mass times acceleration. If you've ever played football or watched football, you understand this law. All right? And the third law is the law of action and reaction, right? That for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, right? You shoot a gun, it kicks back, right? We understand that, don't we? Now, that third law, uh, if we remove the words equal and opposite, right, is very applicable on the spiritual level as well. For every encounter that we have with Jesus in God's word, we will have always inevitably a reaction, a response. Right? You, you can't not respond. As the rock band Rush sang back in the day, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. All right? You will either respond positively or you will respond negatively. Jesus in Luke chapter 11 says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutrality when it comes to God's word, when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the gospel, right? No one can be a spiritual Switzerland and say, oh, we're neutral. We're out of this. Well, this morning, in our text, we, we see a decidedly negative response to Jesus and to his teaching. And it's from those in his very own hometown of Nazareth, no less. They are filled with rage, with wrath at what Jesus has said to them. And like a lynch mob, they seek to throw him off of a cliff outside the city. Made me think of the words of the Apostle John in John chapter 1, verse 12. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But the responses of the Nazarenes here in this passage, their response forces us to consider our own response to Jesus. In particular, in three areas. How will you respond to Jesus' claims about his identity how will you respond to Jesus' teaching about sovereign election? And how will you respond to Jesus' mission to outsiders? So those are the three things, the three questions that I want us to ask and to answer this morning. First, how will you respond to Jesus' claims about his identity? Now, as Dean unpacked for us last week, after Jesus' temptation, he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to, to Galilee, his home state, as it were, and he began teaching and preaching and, and performing miracles. He was becoming so well-known throughout the whole region uh, that Mark tells us that he, he could no longer publicly enter into a city, but he was staying in the unpopulated areas. But one day, he comes to Nazareth, where he had grown up under Joseph and Mary. In the synagogue on that Sabbath day, the book of Isaiah is providentially handed to him to read and to speak from. Jesus intentionally turns in the scroll right, the, to the portion that we know as Isaiah 61. They didn't have chapters back then. He turns to this portion of the scroll and he reads the first few verses. And then with every eye fixed on him, Jesus says these words, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is making the audacious claim that Isaiah, some 700 years beforehand, had ultimately been writing about him. He was God's servant. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the one anointed with the Holy Spirit in order to bring freedom to those who were under the bondage of sin 
and the sorrow of sin. Jesus is saying that he was the fulfillment of all of God's purposes and promises in the Old Covenant. Now, you, you see there in verse 22, at first, the people of Nazareth are impressed. Right? All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Right? They're amazed. They're astonished at his teaching. They're praising him just like all the other towns in Galilee had done, like we see there in verse 15. But then they start to remember who it was that was making such incredible claims. You see the words. Isn't this Joseph's son? Right? Isn't this the kid from our hometown next door who, who made our living room furniture, who helped his father build our house? We played with him when he was a little boy. Like we watched him grow up. Does he really think we're going to buy everything he's saying about him being the fulfillment of prophecy? And so they take offense, don't they? They take offense that, that someone they assumed they knew so well would make such radical claims. First, they're impressed. Then they're indifferent. And finally, they're incensed. And why? Because Jesus sees what's going on, doesn't he? And, and Jesus, rather than bending over backward to, to try to change their hearts and change their minds, no, Jesus in verse 23 provokes them even more, doesn't he? By pointing out their unbelief. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Well, we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus knows that they want him to do miraculous signs to prove his claims about who he is. But Jesus also knows that, that this demand does not arise from faith. Faith that he is who he's claiming to be. But this demand arises because they are skeptical. Right? And even if he performed miracles and signs, they would have explained it away. They had no intention, no desire to believe. And, and Jesus refuses to pander to their unbelief. And so he quotes a proverb back to them. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I mean, sure, even today, maybe a, a famous athlete, a famous actor, a famous singer, a famous politician, someone who did some miraculous thing, we would welcome them with open arms. We would put a billboard in the, you know, in the city square saying, the home of so-and-so. But Someone who wants to tell us that we're sinners in need of a savior? No way. We changed your diapers, right? We helped raise you. We remember when you were in youth group. And so familiarity, breeding contempt here in Luke chapter four. But here's the thing. The same may be true of you this morning. How will you respond to the claims of Jesus to be the Christ? to be the anointed savior of sinners, the, the prophet of God whose message alone can bring you freedom? How will you respond to the claim that Jesus is the only way to the Father, the only truth, the, the life, he says? Now, of course, you didn't grow up in Nazareth, right, knowing Jesus when he was a child, but perhaps you've grown up in church hearing about Jesus since you were a child. It's very possible that like the Jews in Nazareth, you can sit week in and week out on the Sabbath day in corporate worship and even be wowed by the preaching of the gospel, but have a heart of unbelief, a heart of indifference, a heart of hostility toward the things of God. Perhaps you remember Herod in Mark chapter 6, who enjoyed listening to John the baptizer preach, but when his wife's daughter asked for his 
head on a platter. He brought it out. He killed him. Perhaps you remember Felix in Acts chapter 24, who would converse often with Paul, Luke tells us. But he refused to believe Paul's message of righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Surely you remember the Jews in the wilderness who received manna every single day of those 40 years. And yet in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, we read that they loathed it. They hated it as miserable food. J.C. Ryle has put it beautifully. How apt men are to despise the highest privileges when they are familiar to them. How apt men are to despise the highest privileges when they are familiar to them. And how prone we are to undervalue the means of grace when we have them in abundance. Bibles in every room of our house opportunities to study God's word and to, to worship and to be with God's people everywhere we look in America, right? Sure, during COVID, right, we learned how much we took for granted, right? Being able to gather weekly with the saints and corporate worship to sit under the preached word. But three years later, I wonder, has worship become boring again to you? Has worship become optional again to you, right? Does being with God's people morning and evening and hearing the preached word of God a second time on Sunday night and being with God's people a second time on Sunday night, is that a burdensome thing rather than a blessing? Or, or let's say that you're someone who does come on Sunday morning and Sunday night and even Wednesday night, right? Do you hear the word of God, but you don't care about it? You don't do it? You you refuse to take it seriously or to let it change you? How do you respond to Jesus' claims about who he is? Does your heart demand that Jesus prove who he says? Prove it, Jesus. Show it in my life. Look at my life. Look at all the hard things I've gone through. I'll believe in you when when my life gets better. Does this idea of being in need of a savior, poor and blind, captive and oppressed by sin, of Jesus being the only savior that can save you, does that rub you the wrong way? Are you tired of Jesus stepping on your toes and telling you how you are to live? You see, Luke is pressing this question upon us. How will you respond to Jesus' claims about his identity? How will you respond? But there's another question that Luke wants us to consider. How will you respond to Jesus' teaching about sovereign election? You see, after calling out their unbelief and their refusal to accept Jesus as the, the son and the servant that God had declared him to be, Jesus gets even more provocative in verses 25 to 27. Read with me. But in truth, says Jesus, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And Jesus here mentions two Bible stories that they would have known from the book of Kings, from 1 Kings chapter 17, 2 Kings chapter 5, during the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And 
you remember this mention of the, the, the heavens being shut up for three and a half years and a great famine over the land. It reminds us, doesn't it, that Elijah and Elisha prophesied during a time of great wickedness in Israel, when God's prophets were not welcome in their home country, but the prophets of Baal were, very much so. And so here we are in this time of rebellion, this time of wickedness. The people had rejected God's word, even as they were rejecting Jesus. And so God chooses in those days of Elijah and Elisha to send his word outside of Israel, to Sidon, to Syria, so that his prophets might minister to those that God had chosen for deliverance from among the nations. Now we'll get to the nations part in the last point, but in this point, I want you to consider that word chosen. You see, by mentioning these stories at this very moment, Jesus is declaring to the Jews in Nazareth the freedom of God, the freedom of God's sovereign election, his sovereign grace. Notice all the passive voices in what I just read, right? The, the, the passive voice, you know, the active voice is, you know, Caleb threw a ball. The passive voice is Caleb was thrown a ball, right? Well, look at these words. Elijah was sent. The heavens were shut up. Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. These are all divine passives. That is, God is the one who shut up the heavens. Since God is the one who sent Elijah, God is the one who cleansed Naaman according to the counsel of his will and his good pleasure. You see, Jesus's point is, is that God did not choose to send Elijah to any of the widows in Israel but only to a widow of Zarephath in, in Sidon to provide food for her and for her son during the famine. And then remember to raise the son to life from the dead when he died. And God didn't choose to heal any of the lepers in Israel, Jesus is saying, through Elisha, but only the general of the enemy army of Syria. Jesus is driving this point home to them. God was sovereign. And the distribution of his grace to heal and to save whom he willed to heal and to save. Is it any wonder that the Nazarenes were filled with rage and tried to kill Jesus? He is sticking a knife into their pride, into their self-righteousness. He is proclaiming the truth of God's free and sovereign election, that God is no man's debtor, right? that God's grace is never owed to anyone and is not deserved by anyone. God is under no obligation to feed all the widows in Israel or to heal all the lepers in Israel. He was under no obligation in this story to grant faith to every Israelite in Jesus's hometown just because they were Israelites. God wasn't going to be a hometown ref, a hometown clock operator. When I was my first pastorate in Columbia, Mississippi, I played on a church basketball uh, league and uh, the referees at New Hope Baptist Church in Foxworth, Mississippi, like might as well have been wearing New Hope Baptist Church jerseys, right? <laughs> and there was so much home cooking in that game. Like, I, I think the team I was on is like, we're never going back to that gym again. Yeah. God's not like that. God doesn't show partiality to anyone, Jesus is saying. And if he chooses to pass over some to save others, there is no injustice in him at all. Remember the words of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will 
and the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is a mess. This is a disaster. This is wrong. Before Luke, we were in the book of Romans. We were in Romans chapter 9 through 11. Do you remember the words that we heard? They were hard words, difficult words. Not all Israel is Israel. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on a man who runs or a man who wills, but on God who has mercy. God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Just because you're baptized, just because you're a member of the visible church, doesn't mean that you can presume that you'll be welcomed into glory on the last day when Jesus returns or when you die. What did Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? We volunteered at VBS. But Jesus will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. How many false professors, how many ignorant and deceived church members, how many weeds in the midst of wheat, how many Esau's and Ishmael sit in church pews every single Sunday? No doctrine is as offensive to human nature, to the pride of man, than that of divine and free sovereign election. And so again, the question is, well, how do you respond to it? How do you respond to what Jesus is teaching here in this passage? Do you respond with rage like the Nazarenes? Or will you respond with humility like Job in Job chapter 40? Behold, I am insignificant. I lay my hand on my mouth. What can I reply to you? And do you respond like the tax collector in Luke 18? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Which brings us to our last point. How will you respond to Jesus's mission to outsiders? How will you respond to Jesus's mission to those who are outsiders, pagans, lost? You see, the widow of Zarephath, a name in the Syrian, don't only confront us with the truth of sovereign election. They also confront us with the fact that God has sent his son not only to save Jews, but to save Gentiles as well. Now, if you're you're looking through your Gospels and you're sort of doing a a harmony of the Gospels, you'll realize that this story in Luke chapter 4, when you read in Matthew and Mark, it it actually happened later on in Jesus' ministry. And Luke has moved it forward, right, in his recounting of Jesus' life and ministry in order to make this point at the very beginning that there are no special favors to Jews because they're Jews, that the Gospel belongs to all peoples, to every nation, tribe, and tongue. Jesus has come to save the nations. And the same rage that marked the Nazarenes at this declaration here in Luke 4, when you read in the book of Acts, you see in chapter 13 and chapter 22, it also marked the Jews when Paul declared that he was going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And maybe you hear this news and you think, well, this is great. I'm a Gentile. Jesus has come to save me. The gospel is for me. And that is true. And yet this morning, I want to challenge you to hear this text, not as a Gentile, not as, a, not as an outsider, but I want to challenge you to hear this text as an insider, right? to hear this text as a religious person, 
Because that's what you are, right? You're someone who, who thought it was worth their while to wake up early on a Sunday morning and to get all dressed up to come to church. Like, that's not normal, right? You're an insider, right? And that's who we are when we read this story. We are the Nazarenes in church on the Sabbath day, hearing the word of God, that God saves outsiders, that Jesus came to seek and to save, not those who, who knew exactly where they were and where they were going, but those who were lost. Not those who think they see, but those who are blind. Not, not those who were righteous or who thought they were righteous, but he came to call sinners to repentance. And so the question that this story drives home to us and pushes in, in our heart is how will you respond to the grace of God, to the mission of Jesus for outsiders? There's a parable in Matthew chapter 20 that honestly, it bugs me every time I read it at some, at some level. It's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Do you remember this parable? Right, a laborer goes out at six o'clock in the morning and he hires laborers to work in his vineyard. Right, he says, look, I'm going to pay you a denarius for the day, right? That's sort of a normal day's wage. I'm going to give you, you know, the, the minimum wage, give you, give you what you're, what you're, what you're expecting, right? Well, then at nine o'clock in the morning, he goes back into the marketplace to see some people not working. And he says, Hey, come work in my vineyard, right? And I'll, I'll give you what's right. He says, I'll, I'll give you what's, what's fair and what's right. He does the same thing at 12 o'clock. He does the same thing at three o'clock. He does the same thing at five o'clock, an hour before closing time. And when the day is over, he tells his foreman to gather everybody up, right? And he says, hey, I want you to gather everybody up. I want you to pay them beginning with the, the last group first. And wouldn't you know it, the owner of the vineyard pays the people who had only worked for one hour, he gives them a denarius as if they had worked the whole day. And Jesus says that the, the people who were hired first are like, this is awesome, right? We are about to make bank. We are gonna get paid so much because we've been working if they worked one hour and got it in areas, we're going to make so much money. This is going to be a great day. But then what happens when it's their turn to get paid? They get paid a denarius. That's all they get paid. And they begin to grumble and to complain and say, look, these last men only worked for an hour. And we have borne the burden, the scorching heat of the day, and you've made us equal to them. The owner responds, friends. I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me for denarius? Didn't we have this contract? We had this arrangement? Take what is yours and, and go. But I wish to give to the last man the same as you. Right? Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? Now, I tell you that that parable bugs me. It's because I sympathize with those first workers, don't you? Like, wait, that's not fair. That is not fair. And yet, isn't that Jesus's point? Isn't that Jesus's point? The gospel is not fair, right? The gospel is for outsiders. It's for Gentiles. It's for the irreligious, the unrighteous, for those who haven't done anything to serve God. We're the insiders. We're the religious. We are the servants of God. And if we're not careful, our response to Jesus's mission to outsiders will be the same as it was in Luke chapter four by the Nazarenes. Arrogant, grumbling, selfish, ungenerous. So how can we respond rightly? 
How can we respond rightly to Jesus' claims about his identity, to, to Jesus' teaching about sovereign election, to Jesus' mission to outsiders? How can we? If we know our own hearts, we know it is not easy. There's, there's two answers to that question that I want to give you. The first is this. You have to see yourself. You have to see yourself in Isaiah's description in verse 18. Look again at verse 18. All right. You have to see that you are the poor, that you are the captive, you are the blind, you are the oppressed. As Herman Melville wrote in Moby Dick, heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. If you don't believe that you are cracked about the head and sadly need mending, if you don't believe that you are poor and blind and oppressed and a captive, then you will never respond rightly to what Jesus is saying, who he is and what he's come to do. But there's a second thing you've got to do. You've got to consider that crazy verse 30. What is going on in verse 30? Passing through their midst, he went his way. And I'll tell you the answer. We have no idea. Right? You read commentators like, some of them will say it was a miraculous deliverance. Some will say it wasn't. The answer is Luke doesn't tell us how Jesus escaped the lynch mob. We, we just don't know. Now, and I do lean to say it was probably something supernatural that he, somehow he like slipped through their grasp. The text just doesn't say. But however he slipped out of that mob and sort of walked down the, the street by himself, the point is that what we have here is a preview of the end at the beginning. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, he's giving us a preview of the end of his gospel. The shadow of the cross is already falling on the ministry of Jesus at the very beginning. But Jesus' hour had not yet come, you see. No one can kill Jesus until he lets them kill him. And when he does let them kill him, when his hour does finally come to die, no one is taking his life. He is voluntarily laying it down. He is offering his life himself as the son of God, as the great prophet of God, as the suffering servant, as the priest, a sacrifice for the salvation of those outsiders that God has sovereignly chosen for himself. And it's only as you see here in this text, the cross of Jesus, a savior who intentionally, willingly, at just the right time, will lay down his life for sinners like you. And by that means will bring salvation and cleansing as we have had so beautifully, visibly represented in the sacrament of baptism. It's only then you will be able to respond rightly to Jesus and to his words. Brothers and sisters, you who come to church just like the Nazarenes every day, every Sunday, right? May the Lord keep us from responding the way they did to the truth of God and the gospel. May the Lord work within our hearts faith and repentance. Let's pray. Father, we beg of you, have mercy on us. Would you give to us by your Holy Spirit the right response so that all of our life might be lived for Jesus. 
so that we might humbly and gratefully rejoice that he has saved sinners like us, outsiders like us. Lord, rejoice that he has sent us on mission to go forth and to gather. Lord, we pray that you would make us bold to proclaim this glorious gospel of grace. Lord, we ask for you to do what only you can do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.